This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The headline from the New York Times, monthly payments to families with children to begin. The Biden administration will send up to $300 per child a month to most American families thanks to a temporary increase in the child tax credit. Now, this could encourage childbearing, couldn't it? It's an incentive to have a larger family. This is perhaps why some conservatives and even Christians are supporting this idea. Is there a downside and how is this being covered in the media? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Terry, first of all, what is a religion ghost, and why do you see a virtual haunted house of those ghosts in this story about a temporary increase in the child tax credit? Oh, yeah, where to start? A religion ghost at Get Religion is a term that was in our very first post coming up on 18 years ago. And the whole idea of the religion ghost is that you're dealing with an important news story or topic that you really can't understand unless you include the voices of religious groups, traditions, or people, or you can't understand it without spotting why this story is going to be important to a lot of religious believers. And gosh, this story, I don't even know where to start. I know you're not fond of me asking you questions, but I want to spin that back around for a second and just, you know, we've known each other now for quite a few years, and you've heard me quote many times a story from the Weekly Standard years ago, back when that magazine, May It Rest in Peace, existed. And it was a story about large families. And it it reached a conclusion that basically said, if you meet anyone in America who has more than three children, the odds are extremely high that you're looking at people who are making a theological statement. Do you remember us talking about that? Oh, yeah. So with that in mind, we have a very interesting set of paradoxes here. And I can, I can flesh them out a little bit for our listeners by saying this is a topic that's been around since the Nixon administration, and it's been discussed as a part of efforts to reform welfare, but also to connect to several other problems. And it's, it's significant that the leading Republican voice in favor of this effort, and in fact, someone who wants to go further He wants to have this child credit increased even more, but he wants to do it in place of some of what he believes are failed welfare programs. And that person is Mitt Romney. Now, the minute you say Mitt Romney, you immediately think what? I think I immediately think of someone who's on the outs with his party, or has been on the outs with his party. Okay. 
I bet most Americans, if you ask that question, the first thing they would think of is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They would think of him as the first Mormon candidate for the presidency, and they would identify him by means of his faith. And when you think of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you think of, say, the birth rate in Utah compared with the birth rate in, shall we say, San Francisco, I think you would have people say that, as a rule, people who are practicing members of the Latter-day Saints probably have more children than the norm in American culture. Would you? I think that's a safe assumption. Oh, sure. Yeah, so once again, we're on this connection between demographics and faith, something that is a ghost that keeps popping up in a lot of discussions that you and I have had in recent years. And at the heart of this story, something the Times did get right, and they included in the story, it's not the only reference to religion that's in the story, but they did get the fact that obviously we are in a birth rate crisis, and that this is not only in America, this is around the world, and in more secular societies, Japan leaps to mind as the one that's covered the most because the crisis there is stunning. And you have it in Europe, outside religious populations, most of them linked to Islam. You have this connection between birth rate and religion. And what we have here is Washington being tempted or considering taking a step that when you look at this, you'd say, gosh, this could help people who have a lot of kids. And then the minute you say that, you're left asking another question. When was the last time you heard of the Democrats wanting to do something that is probably going to lead to an explosion of homeschooling or the potential for students to be able to go to alternative schools, private schools. Could you see this having an impact on schools in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? Well, absolutely. A long-term impact, because Lutherans don't reproduce at a greater rate than anybody else, like the Mormons do, but certainly encouraging people to have children now and receive that benefit, and then the added benefit comes generations down the line for if those this, Yeah, if this turns into a strategy change for how America deals with trying to help people who have children, especially middle class and lower class. But I would think that there are a lot of cities in America where there are Catholic families, evangelical families, Eastern Orthodox families, where there are very active people, okay, Orthodox Jewish families, people who are very active in traditional forms of faith, and they have more than the normal number of children compared to the shrinking American pie of child demographics. And these people are looking at this and saying, this might make it easier for the mother to stay home for X number of years. This might make it possible for the family to not need subsidized child care for a, a period of time until the mother could then have more choices at a different stage of her life. I could see them saying, this might help us 
get our children into the Christian school that we've been interested in for some time, but we couldn't afford it. It has a number of different potential links, but when you dig into the story, the only voice in this story that is identified as a Christian is a conservative Christian with multiple children who finally just says, look, I'm a Christian believer. I rely on God more than I rely on the government. And so even though he has four children, he's worried about this plan. He doesn't want to get hooked on government aid, which is a concern that I have heard conservative Christians with lots of children mention about their fear of this. Do they really want this money from the government? Do they trust the government? And that gets us into a whole other subject here, which is some of the divisions within American political culture, and in particular, a division inside the Republican Party between one group of people that tend to be called populists and want to help the middle class and want to reach out to members of other racial groups. And then the other is the more libertarian, leave us alone, we're doing fine at our country club, kind of typical stereotype of Republicans. And I think you're going to find that that division among the GOP is a major factor in what happens to this story and where it goes from here. And the populists right now tend to be the people who are most interested in working with religious conservatives. There's some of the people who have begun to say, well, should the government be concerned about a low birth rate? In Russia, to name another culture that has a very low birth rate, the organization in Russia that has stepped forward and has said, our government needs to help families. We need to give tax credits to people who have multiple children. We need to do everything we can to help them. And we want to encourage this in every way is the Russian Orthodox Church, saying that we need more families who are open to the presence of life in the form of children. We need more people who are less scared of having children and having it impact their career, you know, and impact their lifestyle. And maybe we won't get to travel as much. There are so many values that get connected to a decision of having children and having multiple children. And this story could call them all up if you had reporters and editors who saw that ghost and decided that they wanted to cover it. So you found something at the website Juicy Ecumenism a story by James Didums, who drew heavily on a frequent guest to this program, Brad Wilcox. What is his take on it? Well, I mean, this this I've had stored away now for a couple of weeks, and I was thinking about running it at Get Religion as a, a think piece. And now it obviously directly links into, you know, this the story that we're talking about. I mean, evangelicals and other conservatives have been among the people who have been most critical, for obvious reasons, of something like the the Chinese government's one-child policy, something that apparently even China has decided they're not going to be able to maintain that. And very quietly, there's signs that not only are they raising that to two children 
They may do away with the policy altogether. And once again, we see this link between kind of energy in a culture and whether or not people are open to having children. And then, of course, you have links to an issue like child gender selection abortion leaps into mind. And somewhere down, you know, several inches down in this story, there's a quote from Wilcox when he says, too many Republicans are stuck in a Reagan-style approach to public policy where you want to talk a good game but not advance the ball when it comes to working and middle-class families. And once again, here's that division between the populist cultural conservatives and the old game of what frequently I grew up calling them country club Republicans. That was the phrase that I knew growing up in Texas. And as I said earlier, this debate goes all the way back to the Nixon era. And the person who was talking about this and saying the government's going to have to get on the other side of this family issue and try to decide whether the government wants to encourage families or does it only want to have welfare that supports a certain form of family like single parents and urban. We want this to be an urban issue, which we then interpret as being a black issue and whatever else. And that person, that prophetic voice was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, of a sociologist from Harvard and a Catholic thinker who then, of course, turns into Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And frankly, one of the last of the Democrats who got along well with some of the populist Republicans on the other side of the aisle. And I, I'm thinking now of what were the bills that Moynihan worked on so many times with the conservative Catholic Rick Santorum. What were the bills that they worked on and that they shared together? Almost all of them were on family, food, alternative schooling, you know, and a host of things that you would say would be targeting the middle class and the working lower class. So, I mean, this is a political story in the eyes of the, of the New York Times. I mean, what else could it be for the New York Times? But I've, I'm just getting started here. We've got so many interesting religion angles in this. Catholics versus Protestants and how they often view whether the government should work directly with families. This is a, a major difference between the black church and the white church, especially among evangelicals. This is a major difference between how American Christians view the role of government and how global Christians view the role of government in places like South America and Africa and Asia. I could go on and on. You had mentioned Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and I believe he was able to make common cause with people like Senator Santorum because they were both concerned about preserving the nuclear family and keeping families intact. The progressive who are pushing for this, what they call a guaranteed child income, they're not interested in the nuclear family. They're more aimed at trying to assuage child poverty. And they're certainly not, as far as I can tell, interested in increasing the birth rate in the United States. There are a very big difference in the motivations here. Is there a Daniel Patrick Moynihan 
in the Democratic side of the U.S. Senate today? That's a, a really interesting question. I think you may find some liberal Catholics. I think you may find some African-American and Latino political figures who will realize some of the implications of here. But I think you can also see how this is going to turn out to be a not-so-stereotypical Democrats are automatically one way and Republicans are automatically on the other side. I think you can see where some of the real divisions lie when you throw in another issue. Democrats right now are really, they, they call it human infrastructure. Everything can be infrastructure if you look at it the right way, I guess. And they want a national major subsidy for government approved, if not operated, child care centers. Now stop and think about that right now. Do you think that most conservative Catholics, Protestants, Jews, etc., have the same definition of good child care as most of these people that you're talking about in the Democratic Party? No. No. If, if you look at what Americans say they would prefer to have in child care, they would prefer to have child care, if, they, if they're going to use it, they would prefer to have it related somehow to their own extended families, perhaps some sort of subsidized money that could help an aunt or a grandmother or someone else be able to do more child care for children in the family, a part of an extended nuclear family. Maybe that was a contradiction in term, just an extended family. The other thing you will hear people say is, well, if I'm going to choose a daycare or child care for my children, I would really like it to be at my church, or I would really like it to be linked to our Christian school, where, like, say, maybe there would be a pre-kindergarten program at age three or at latest at four, where a child, my one of my children could go ahead or several of my children could go ahead and start visiting the school that we're also trying to support as a family, because I would predict that just as many Americans disagree with each other on what constitutes good education for their children, and that's a division that has all kinds of religious overtones, and I think anybody would see it, and we can see that in the battles over tuition subsidies or even tax credits or anything that would help religious private schools. We, we see the wars immediately begin with very predictable divisions, sort of. I think we'd see the same divisions over child care. And thus we see some of those divisions over this effort to help families based simply on whether or not they have children. If you want to find Democrats who are open to at least talking about maybe the state should take an approach to where we let parents decide what they do with subsidies concerning education, I think you're much more likely to find Southern Bible Belt African American Democrats and Latinos willing to talk about those sorts of uh, options than you are some from urban New York or, once again, San Francisco or L.A. All of these issues about whether children are a good thing 
And should parents be the ones in charge of making decisions about how to help them? Any policy that gets into that area, you're immediately going to find these divisions related to religion pop right up front, and people end up arguing about that. So you had mentioned some other angles, one of them being Protestant and Catholic divide. How would you see that one in this story? Well, Catholics, especially Catholics in other parts of the world and in America, tend to be much more likely to think that government activity is not automatically bad. They would be much less likely to say, I'm a Christian and thus I rely on God instead of the government. They'd be much more willing to say, well, I think maybe a health care program that cooperates with Catholic and other religious hospitals, maybe we need a policy where government helps with health care, but we then honor the conscience of both the consumers and patients and the doctors themselves. I think you'd much more likely to hear them say that than, say, very conservative evangelical Protestants. In the world scene, we see this in a party like the Solidarity Party in Poland, you know, which was linked to labor unions and was linked to an activist approach to the government, but was opposed to communism and was opposed to these sort of radical controls on the church and family and others. I happen to be a registered member of a political party here in America, the American Solidarity Party, which takes a lot of its roots from those European parties and their traditions. It's It's a small third party at this point, but I think, once again, the thing listeners might be interested in knowing is that's a party that is very conservative, using American labels, very conservative on moral and social issues, you know, on abortion, defense of marriage, and a host of other things, but tends to be more progressive on economic issues and things related to labor unions and government programs to help the poor. They would just simply prefer to have government programs that help the poor that don't discriminate against religious believers and against religious institutions. So here's that divide again. Religion's going to be involved, but it's not going to just be all Democrats versus all Republicans. I think the more this issue gets debated and whether or not a policy like this has a chance to continue, I predict religion will be at the middle of those debates. So you also mentioned how American Christians view the role of government as opposed to global Christians. How would you suss out that particular religion angle here? Well, once again, in places like Africa and Asia, you're much less likely to see Christians stand kind of A Ronald Reagan, you know, there's no good such thing as good government. The way you make life better for people is to get the government out of their lives. When you get over to Europe and Africa and Asia and other parts of the world, you're much more likely to hear Christians say, well, let's not automatically assume that the government is always wrong or that government help is always bad. Maybe we should judge the effects of these policies, and maybe we should shut some government programs down, but try other things. You're much more likely to see Catholic thinkers, in particular, 
more willing to engage with the government and say, okay, let's try that, but let's make sure conscience is respected. Let's make sure we're not undercutting parental rights. Let's do this carefully, but let's not be afraid to try. I think that's um, a major difference between how the global church, global Anglicanism, and frankly, even the growing Protestant churches of places like Africa and Asia, I think you would find them to be more willing to work with the government in an attempt to do good instead of just harping on things the government does that are bad. And you also mentioned an angle involving white Christians and African-American Christians. Well, once again, I think if you go into African-American churches across America and even down in the Bible Belt, you will find people who say, we want soup kitchens. We want to do what we can to help the poor. But there are some things where we're just going to have to cooperate with the government. Let me give you a flip side of that. When we were talking about the Equality Act and whether the impact that the Equality Act would have on alternative schools and the, the impact it would have on social programs that are operated by churches, one of the things that I think in one of our conversations here with our listeners, I said, you're going to be surprised how many black Christians and Latino Christians are at that moment going to say, hey, wait a minute, Democrats. Do you realize the impact that the Equality Act is going to have on our churches, on our schools, on our social programs for the poor? If The minute you don't let us take part in those at all, this whole thing with the Equality Act is going to come back to haunt the Democratic Party with some of its key constituency groups. Secular Democrats may think it's fine, but the minute you start talking to Democrats who are sitting in church pews, a high percentage of which are going to be African Americans, Latinos, and, and people in the Midwest, you know, in areas that are still pretty heavily churched, I think you're going to find Democrats get divided on that issue. And you see how that relates to this one. Those are the churches that are trying to have these programs that work with the government instead of saying, no, we're going to no cooperation with the government at all. With about 30 seconds here, Terry, you mentioned the New York Times and how we can see nothing but politics here. Do you expect other media outlets to be able to detect any of these religion ghosts and pursue those angles on the child tax credit? Oh, no, I think this is a story that may have to come into the mainstream press through coverage in respected religious media. Among evangelicals, that would be something like Christianity Today. There are all kinds of alternative Catholic news sources through which reporters might see this covered. But I think I think this will be a story that comes through religious media unless there are some populist Republicans who stand up on the floor of the House or Senate and say something like, do you realize how much this is going to help homeschool families? Do you realize how much this is going to help alternative education forms? Do you realize how much this could help alternative church-based forms of daycare? If that starts being said by populist Republicans and a few Democrats say, that's okay with us, 
then, yeah, it could show up. But it will have to occur in a political setting for those voices to be heard. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.